Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio's flagship show celebrated 150 episodes on our air. We spoke to a well-known local musician, heard from a prominent media critic, and discussed the enduring power of talkies. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for August 17, 2018. Radio Free Bridgeport celebrated 150 episodes on Lumpen Radio with appearances from their favorite guests. John Daly welcomed John Langford and the students of Yolo Cali back into Studio B to celebrate, while John Putrowski captured the mood on the street. Let's listen in. John, you went to you went to art school in Leeds, right? That was how you got from Wales to Leeds in the first place, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I took uh, the easy route, which was, you know, you used to do A-levels. It was what you had to do at the end of high school. I don't know what they call it over here, but when you graduate, you have to take certain subjects for your last two years. So I took art, English, and history because they're considered the, you know, the laziest options. But I always knew I wanted to go to art school, but there was a big art school in my hometown, mm. and you have to do a thing called a foundation year uh, if the, if, and to go to, to art school somewhere else. So I would have had to do an extra year in my hometown, and I found out about university fine art courses where you could go straight mm-hmm. and you had to take a portfolio of your art down to London and show them to these people and people would look at it. And for some reason, the university, I didn't get into a couple of the places I applied to, mm-hmm. but the University of Leeds said I had to just pass two A-levels, basically, mm-hmm. get two E's, because mm-hmm. um, that, that was interesting as well, because Leeds' nickname was always two E's and an LSD, mm-hmm. how it was described in the 80s anyway. But... Um, yeah, so I just thought, well, they must really want me to go there. <laughs> but again, path of least resistance. Yeah. So I ended up in, in Leeds. I didn't even know where Leeds was, really. I knew it was up north somewhere, but the north was just all the same to me. It was all just big industrial towns. But I was from a grotty, middle-sized industrial town. And I moved to Leeds, which was a large industrial town. And then I moved to Chicago, which is a huge, huge industrial, industrial town. town so. <laughs> you just keep trading up, John. I do. Yeah. I know. But they all they have they have sort of similarities to them, which I, do, find, yeah. I, I have found comfortable. Yeah. So. But Leeds was not like I say when I got to Leeds. I was in 76 and I went to art school. And literally looking back on it now, it feels like everything was in black and white. Mm. You know, it, just, it was just a really... Rough time, you know, weird yeah. time politically, a lot of violence, football hooliganism, just bad politics, rough stuff going on. Well, uh, it's kind of like what's happening here now. Yeah, I think, it, I think it is. And I don't know if there's ever kind of golden ages. You know, I certainly don't believe that things were ever better. Because <laughs> right. things, I think for most people, things are always worse, you know. But yeah. uh, things do seem to be in a bit of a nosedive at the moment, so... But uh, it's just that rise of racism was, it was very apparent to me. It was made very, it was, you know, you couldn't avoid it. It was right in your face right. in Leeds at that time. And to see it coming back now is is pretty horrible. John, you, know, you talked about uh, a turning point in 1981 and, and the Rock Against Racism bands and, and some of the folks who took a stand and, and uh, kind of put a mirror up to the, the hate that was going on at the time. What were some of the, what were some of the things that you saw that that were hopeful at that time? You know, you mentioned the specials. Um, well, I think that you know, you were just mentioning the the, the two tone thing. Was you say there was a mural or something somewhere? Uh, Chema, who teaches one of the classes, he right. he re releases a lot of um, uh, Spanish ska bands 
uh, Latin American ska bands, Mexican ska bands, and as a label uh, that that's producing it. And then for Jump Up Records, does a lot of the artwork, and he's just a really great guy and 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 good friend. Wow, well, that's just you know, I find that really interesting because you know, punk rock in Britain was very white. You know, it was what was interesting about punk rock when it started was that it, it was it was there was a lot of women involved in it. That, that was one barrier broken down. But like a couple of years later, the Scar thing came up with bands like Madness, The Specials, uh, Selector. Uh, the, what were the other ones? Who did Mirror in the Bathroom? Uh, but, yeah. you know, they, oh, I can't remember their name. God. Yeah, I can't. Because I'm senile. The English Beat. They were called The Beat. But, you know, then it, then it became a more multiracial thing, which was, which was you know, the, it was the nature of inner cities in Britain. Were you know? Wasn't that called mixed. the Twin Tone? The Twin Tone? No, Two Tone. Two Tone. Yeah, the Two Tone label put out the specials, but it was a movement, and it brought what the Clash had done initially was bring reggae music in. Reggae music was when punk rock didn't have anything. You didn't have anything to listen to at a punk rock gig because there were no punk rock records in nineteen seventy six, nineteen seventy seven. They would play reggae, and then we had a lot of interaction up in the north of England with reggae sound systems, sort of West Indian kids playing dub reggae and you know, rare 12 inches. And it was fantastic. It was really brilliant. But we didn't really, at that stage, mate, we didn't feel like we could play reggae music. Mm-hmm. The Clash did. They actually covered some reggae songs. And then there was bands like The Ruts would tour with a band called Misty and Roots, and we opened for them. And it was, it was very, you know, we then traveled with a, a, a sound system of kids from Chapel Town in, in Leeds, you know, West Indian kids who were wild and funny, and uh, uh, but the the, the two tone thing came up, and then suddenly there was the ska revival. I, I wasn't that keen on it being like a ska revival mm-hmm. too much because I thought what would be more interesting was if they were making, you know, original stuff, and, it, and pretty soon they did. And then you listen to a song like Ghost Town by the Specials, which was number one on the charts in July 1981, when the Rock Against Racism movement was at its height and at its most successful, that song really described, you know, held yeah, held a mirror up to what was really going on in, in England. Too much fighting on the dance floor. All, you know, the lyrics are fantastic to that song. It's a really joyful piece of music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that, that was a, a positive thing. I've been, lots, I've been involved in lots of political movements that are kind of rear guard actions, you know, when you're trying to, like, the miners' strike or the right to work, trying to battle against people like Margaret Thatcher. But I really felt with the, the anti-Nazi rock against racism thing, it did get to a point where it worked and it convinced a lot of people that I was a dead end and they didn't want anything to do with it. And it's just sad that that's been let slip now. Yeah. And Jerry Nine, you guys are seeing this now. I mean, obviously it's very, uh, there's very difficult times in Little Village and Pilsen because of the president's uh, crackdown on immigrant populations and immigrant families. How have you guys uh, reacted and, and responded to that? Mm, I feel like uh, the way that I've responded mainly was uh, getting a little bit involved more in the community. Uh, I've I've been using my craft within radio and journalism to kind of speak out more. Uh, recently, I, uh, I did an article on, uh, on a friend of mine. His name is uh, Joseph Mora, and uh, he graduated from SAIC, and one of his finals for uh, for the university to graduate was uh, creating a uh, like an exhibition, and his was uh, called on documented projects. So I used 
radio and, and journalism as my craft to to just uh, bring more awareness and bring uh, more light into into this uh, topic that we've been uh, like uh, like plagued upon I guess in our neighborhood um, but it, it is something that uh, it, it makes it makes me wonder more like what what more can we do and what more can we do to help our community yeah, and also um, the project he just mentioned, um, other students from Yolo Kali are involved as well. And I guess how I've been dealing with it or trying to help out is just like emotionally supporting some of like my family members and friends that, you know, are struggling way more because of these situations. Um, I get really anxious when I think about some of the things that happen. So it's not that I don't try to get involved. I, I just try to see how I can get involved with helping others rather than just like the political situations which is why I like emotionally support a lot of my friends and family members because I know there's a lot of fear. I'm Man of the People, John Petrowski, and today we're asking everyday Chicagoans just like yourself what Radio Free Bridgeport has meant to them. Is that the show on the station you can only get with a tin can uh, and a string? Uh, no, it's Radio Free on Lumpin' Radio, Tuesday's Drive Time, Premier Talk Show. Are you sure? I live in Bridgeport, across the street, and all I hear is a bunch of static. Right, moving along. Thank you. Oh, ma'am, how, how has John Daly enriched your life? Get away from me, you disgusting man. Ah, I'm just a roving reporter, lady. Police! Police! He's a pervert! He's a psycho no, don't pervert! You, 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 you. Spontaneous Vegetation spoke to Dresden the Media Skeptic, an arborist and longtime labor organizer. He talks about organizing his coworkers at Mobile Rail Solutions through IWW, strategies for long-term activism, and his favorite tree species. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second Sunday of the month at 5 p.m. So it's a, it's a really fortuitous time that I get to talk to my current guest, who's in the studio with me. And uh, his name is Dredson, or called the Media Skeptic. He's a direct action trainer and organizer who has worked with many local and national grassroots, grassroots organizations. He currently runs the site Media Skeptic that both exposes media tactics and helps promote media literacy. So Dredson, said, welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so Dredson, um, I just want to say that uh, I met you just um, a little over a month ago, and uh, I found out that on top of doing all this really kind of hardcore work that you do, you also do um, this kind of, uh, a different kind of hardcore work of that you're an arborist in the yes. city of Chicago. Um, so we're going to end on trees, because I think it's really important, but I really want to get into... Uh, the work you do um, addressing uh, what you see as um, the wrongs or the injustices out there um, because so many of us see these things but we don't necessarily know how best to approach them and you're really strategic in how you uh, approach them so I thought we'd start with um, hearing a little bit about uh, just a touch on what you do uh, currently um, with your uh, training and organizing and maybe segue into how you got activated in that okay. work. All right. Um, 
my current, I say currently, the, uh, the type of things that I'm doing is um, I get I get paid by different organizations and to to train people on long term strategic campaigns where. Uh-huh. Basically, it's instead of, um, I mean, I could teach people how to do just an action, too. I know how to do that type of stuff. There's a lot of people that do that. But how to find a target and how to look at that particular target and figure out how a campaign is going to look for a year, two years, three years out if necessary, uh-huh. and how that actually is going to look. Um, different in There's different injustices out here, whether it's environmental, whether it's labor, whether it's uh, gender, whether it's racial. And a lot of people work 12 hours a day, 10 hours a day, five, six days a week, and they may not actually have access to information about how to go about addressing the grievances that they may personally face in their everyday life or things they see elsewhere. And one way to... um, uh, People that do direct action training or activism, a lot of people don't know that there's campaigns out here that have been winning lots of victories with corporations, um, even with a, like legislation, leg, legis, legislatively. And what I learned over the years was the way the system is set up for people in power to stay in power and to keep doing the things that they're doing, it's for most of us to not know how to go about coming at them and how to actually address those things. You mean we don't just uh, call up our local uh, nonprofit? Uh, in some cases, that can be a starting point. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but if you do that and stop, like if you just show up and uh, let's say you call your um, your big, organization say hey listen i'm gonna send you five bucks a month and you know hopefully you'll figure it out for me (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and in some cases depends on the organization that may actually help to go a long way but when it comes to um big power people have lots of money we'll talk we could talk about that you know versus you know some of the smaller problems you may have in a community when it comes to uh big power they seem they only answer primarily to hurting their bottom line, their money, uh, or just making them sad and depressed and miserable because you just keep bothering them some kind of way. And their objective is to basically either pay a lawyer to just take care of you. And they want to be far away. Yeah, they want to be removed. Mm -hmm. They want to just sit in their ivory tower, pay someone some money, and then let them just deal with it. If you can get around that and get into the tower, I don't listen. I don't mean go into the tower literally. Like if that's if they live in the tower and that's their private property, I'm not saying go in there. This is all figurative. This yeah. this is metaphorically speaking. <laughs> um, like legally, like how do you get it to where they have to actually respond to you? Mm-hmm. And if I can get them to re- respond. Or if we can get them tied up legally in an entanglement or put them in a predicament where they can't get in, you know, they find out, wow, I'm getting exposed in this type of way. How much money is this going to cost me? Can I just pay this? Can we weather the storm? If it looks like they can't weather the storm, then they're going to want to talk to you 
Okay, what's the, isn't there like a another step before that called being heard or you don't mm-hmm. worry about being heard, you're just interested in the response? Yeah, well, okay, so there's different types of campaigns. So I'll give you an example. Let's okay. say if you have, um, um, if you don't have that many people, for example, we'll go with, let's say there's only five or six of you and there's really not a really big group. And right. then we'll talk about that. Then we could talk about if you have the numbers too. If you have a really small group, then you're thinking, okay, how do I get to the media? You know, because I have to get some attention. Um, then you get creative, creative with either social media type things, doing shock and awe actions that could be kind of big outside that actually gets the attention of them. Uh, getting into their business, finding out where, when I say find out where people live at, I don't mean go to their house. Well, there's ways to do that. As long as you're on public property, the sidewalk in front of their house, you know, don't go into the actual yard. All right. Um, <laughs> Finding out what people do and then getting all the information about them. You know, mm-hmm. It may take some time. It may take some digging. But once you get that information, then from there, you can kind of design your campaign around how us five people are going to get the atrocities that they're doing into the actual media. Mm-hmm. And um, with um, an example was a campaign in uh, it was in southern Illinois. It was um, against Peabody Coal. And these were just five or six people that Mm, were farmers. Right. Well, what they did was they waited until it was an election year down there Uh among the local people. And that's when those few four or five people decided to start doing blockades and blocking the roads where Peabody was trying to bring equipment in at. Right. Then they found out there was weight limits. You know, there's weight limits there. So let's change the weight, figure out how much the vehicles weigh, and then, you know, kind of jam them up that way. Uh-huh. And then eventually. Legally. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Weight limits on roads. Right. And being up there, you're doing something like that at a time that they're not expecting it, and you're doing it during election season. You right. have other politicians wanting to jump in and opine about what's going on so they got free media attention that way uh-huh. which the company did not want that type of attention which mm-hmm. previously they may not have been able to get that i think i lost him <clears throat> i'm man of the people john petrowski and today we're asking everyday chicagoans just like yourself what radio free bridgeport has meant to them oh yes John's show has meant the world to me. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yes. As a member of a marginalized community, John's words were so soothing. Oh, um, and what, what community was that? Oh, uh, we call ourselves Froils. Uh, we like to dress up in animal costumes, then soil ourselves profusely with cooking oil. John was really so supportive. I think you're thinking of Dan Savage. Oh, yes, Dan Never heard of John. John Langford also played a new song for Radio Free. This is Snake Under Glass. Would you like me to play a song? Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. Let me play a quick song here. Well, I'll do, do a quick song. I'm trying to think what, what I should play. There should be something there. Oh, look, all the microphones are pointed at me now. Brilliant. I'll do a song off the uh, For All Our Souls record because I've been... I'm sad because we had a really great time uh, making that record and traveling around with it. And Bethany Thomas and Tony Newsom and John Samansky were my uh, fellow adventurers on that on that trip to Alabama. And uh, we've done a lot of gigs since then. And uh, we decided it was time to stop for a while and then regroup in 2019 and do some uh, 
do some new songs then. But uh, this is one of the ones from Four Lost Souls record. This is called Snake Behind Glass. There is no twilight. There is no dusk. Just a sunny day. Suddenly turned dark. A kaleidoscope of a thousand ideas becomes a straight line. Snake behind glass. He's like a snake behind glass. A twenty-acre patch. With cotton for cash Vegetables For the table A far better for worse A far worse forever This farm on government land Snake behind glass He's like a snake behind glass I've got stripes He stayed awake For 72 hours straight Slept for 30 He dropped 50 pounds in weight Well he's got painkillers And a guitar case full of amphetamines When he played he wore out his knees Snake behind glass He's like a snake behind glass Snake behind glass He's like a snake behind glass Traffic's backed up all the way down Morgan, and I see why. Uh, Looks like your buddy is at it again. Don't call him my buddy. Kyle, what are you doing? Jess, you're just in time. Let's do a new episode about this. About you washing cars? Well, this is the Seisman Sudski Festival, a semi-annual Bridgeport quasi-celebrity car wash and laundry. I do it every... uh, Hold up. Car wash and laundry? Yes, exactly. People bring their dirty clothes to me, I soap them up, and I wash their car with them. I got all the neighborhood heroes involved. Uh, Over there is a guy who played uh, music on John Daly's show once. How do you do? Go away. And of course, we got Steve from Bernice's. Hi, Jess. Oh, hey, Steve. Oh, well, this seems weirdly pragmatic for you, Kyle. Yes, I know. And just for a few bucks... All Bridgeporters can come to the GoPro Alley for a car and laundry wash. It's like the only time I ever clean anything. Impressive crowd you got here. Man, I've been doing this for years. Where does the other end of that hose go? Oh, I just ran it through the mail slot up to Eric's place. <laughs> he never notices, but it's on the DL, so. Actually, here, hold the hold the hose for a minute. I gotta do this. 
Oh, oh my god. For the listeners, I should explain. Please don't. Kyle, are you wearing a bikini? Are you wearing my bikini? Hey, I found it on the floor fair and square. Whose floor? Jamie's. I live there, too. That's also my floor. Yeah, but you rent. You don't own it. So, like, you know, whatever, right? Not a thing. I definitely don't want that back. And now what my audience has been waiting for. That's more technically impressive than I would have thought possible. I have to say, everyone's mesmerized by... Is that my blouse? I wonder. Are you washing that car with my clothes? Hey, don't blame me. Jamie said he didn't want the car wash. He just wanted the laundry did. Oh, here comes the meltdown. Answer the phone. Jamie, I cannot believe you let Kyle wash the car with my clothes. They ain't clothes, the laundry. Gotta go. This week on the Trump Diaries, the Space Force is launched, the FBI cans Peter Strzok, judges slap Trump back, hell hath no fury like an Omarosa scorned, and Melania's parents join the chain gang. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 567, August 9th. Vice President Mike Pence outlined Trump's proposal to create a Space Force as the sixth branch of the U.S. military by 2020. Pence said the creation of the Space Force, the first new branch of the military since 1947, represented a response to new and emerging threats. Pence said, quote, we must have American dominance in space. Trump followed up with an email blast asking donors to vote on one of the new Space Force logos for a fee. Experts disagree on space policy, but it is clear that space is becoming a crowded and contested area. The Department of Defense is worried that foreign powers could use space-based tech to black out American cities. A federal judge threatened to hold Attorney General Jeff Sessions in contempt after learning Trump had put two asylum seekers on a plane to El Salvador and deported them. The ACLU was representing a woman named Carmen in court documents and her daughter in a challenge of Sessions' policy of not allowing asylum claims based on gang and domestic violence. U.S. District Court Judge Emmett Sullivan ordered the government to, quote, turn the plane around and called their conduct outrageous. House Representative Devin Nunes was calling a secret recording saying that he had stalled trying to impeach Rod Rosenstein because it would delay the Senate's confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. The Senate would have to drop everything they're doing and start with impeachment on Rosenstein and then take the risk of not getting Kavanaugh confirmed, said Nunes. Nunes also said, quote, if Sessions won't unrecuse and Mueller won't clear the president, we're the only ones protecting Trump. Three members of Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club have been influencing policy at the Department of Veterans Affairs. The trio has no formal government experience and their role was only discovered by a FOIA request. The so-called Mar-a-Lago crowd speaks with VA officials daily regarding policy and personnel decisions. New York State Republican Chris Collins was charged with insider trading by the Justice Department. He turned himself into the FBI. He has also suspended his re-election bid in Schenectady, opening up a normally safe Republican seat to the Democrats. His son was also indicted. Day 568, August 10th. Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation hearing is set to begin on September 4th. Mitch McConnell is trying to get Kavanaugh on the bench before the midterm elections. While Democrats cannot block his confirmation, new documents show that Kavanaugh urged Kenneth Starr not to pursue a criminal indictment against Bill Clinton. And that has raised eyebrows because it is likely that Robert Mueller will take his case against Trump all the way to the Supreme Court. A federal appeals court ordered Trump to revoke the approval of a widely used pesticide that can harm the brains of children. The court said that Scott Pruitt's EPA had endangered public health by keeping chlorophyllopols on the market. 
In a related story, a court found Monsanto liable for cancer from its Roundup product. San Francisco jurors ruled that the most popular weed killer in the world gave a former school groundskeeper terminal cancer, and they awarded him $289 million in damages. Monsanto's parent company, Bayer, saw $10 billion wiped off its stock price in the aftermath. Trump's decision to impose tariffs on Canadian newsprint is starting to force cutbacks at local papers and in at least one case shut them down. Newsprint costs have spiked by 30% since tariffs went into effect, punishing already shaky community newspapers. In addition, news organizations are starting to impose security details and guards while covering Trump's rallies as Trump continues to attack the media, calling them the enemy of the people. Trump again attacked NFL players for protesting during the national anthem at preseason games. Multiple players on several teams knelt or raised a fist. Trump claimed they could not, quote, define their outrage and said they instead should be happy, be cool. Day 569, August 11th. Omarosa Mangold Newman said that Trump is a racist who frequently used the N-word and said there are tapes to prove it. He is a racist, bigot, and misogynist, said Mangold, likening her exit from the White House last December to being, quote, freed from a plantation. She called Trump a special kind of effed up, saying she had evidence also of a mental decline of his. Mangold said she refused a $15,000 a month job offer from Trump's campaign to stay silent after being fired from her job by John Kelly last December, and then she later produced a tape of that firing and played it on Good Morning America. In some of the juicier bits of her new tell-all book, Mangold claims Trump was sleeping with Paula White, the blonde prosperity gospel preacher who gave the invigation at his inauguration. Trump also allegedly asked to be sworn in on the art of the deal instead of the Bible. Betsy DeVos rescinded gainful employment regulation meant to hold for-profit colleges accountable and protect students. DeVos is a major investor in for-profit education. The 2014 rule required for-profit colleges to publish information on how much student debt graduates took on and how much they were earning after leaving school. If the debt-to-income ratio did not meet federal standards, the school's funding would be pulled. Senior national security officials, including John Bolton, raced to prevent Trump from upending a policy agreement between NATO allies by getting them to complete the joint communique before the forum began. Day 570, August 12th. Trump doubled tariffs on steel and aluminium from Turkey. The Treasury Department also sanctioned two Turkish officials after that country refused to release the American pastor, Andrew Brunson. In response, the currency of Turkey, the lira, fell by 16%, and their economy now appears to be in freefall. Investors now fear contagion in the marketplace could spread from Turkey's woes. A Trump appointee, Judge Dabney Friedrich, appointed by Trump to the U.S. District Court in Washington, D.C., ruled that Special Counsel Mueller's investigation into the Trump campaign ties to Russia is constitutional. Friedrich is the fourth federal judge to strike down efforts to invalidate Mueller's probe. This latest appeal was funded by the Russian company Concord Management, which was indicted for funding the social media troll farm known as the Internet Research Agency. Melania Trump's parents became U.S. citizens, benefiting from the so-called chain migration that Trump has repeatedly attacked. Victor and Amalia Nobs have been living in the United States as permanent residents. The First Lady's immigration attorney attacked Trump's hostility, saying the attacks on chain migration are unconscionable. This is a tradition that happens in all rank and all files of life, whether you're president of the United States, and this is the first naturalized First Lady that we have, or people who eventually navigate through the waters into America. Day 571, August 13th. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke blamed environmentalists for California's ferocious wildfires, claiming that climate change had nothing to do with them. That's a lie. Instead, he said the fires were worsened because of limits on logging. America's better than letting these radical groups control the dialogue about climate change, Zinke said. Extreme environmentalists have shut down public access. They talk about habitat, and yet they're willing to burn it up. 
Peter Schrock, the FBI agent, came under brutal criticism from Republicans for a series of anti-Trump text messages he had sent during the 2016 campaign, was fired. An internal disciplinary review had recommended Strzok's demotion and a 60-day suspension. The deputy director of the FBI overruled that determination and fired him. Trump used Strzok's firing to again push for Mueller to wrap up the Russia probe. Stephen Miller's uncle wrote an op-ed for Politico calling his nephew a hypocrite. David Glosser wrote, quote, If my nephew's ideas on immigration had been enforced a century ago, our family would have been wiped out. I've watched with increasing horror as my nephew, who's an educated man and well aware of his heritage, has become the architect of immigration policies that repudiate the very foundation of my family's life in this country. And Trump's feud with Omarosa Mangel continued as she continued to leak recordings. Secret tapes showed that Trump, Jared Kushner, and Ivanka Trump were not clued in on key personnel changes. On Monday, Mangold released a tape of a phone call from the president claiming ignorance that she had in fact been fired. Trump, in response, called her a lowlife and wacky in a series of tweets, claiming despite her earnings of $180,000 as a White House staffer, would constantly miss meetings and work, but who also said great things about me. Day 572, August 14th. Trump escalated a bitter row with former aide Omarosa Mangold, calling her a dog. Quote, when you give a crazed, prying lowlife a break, give her a job at the White House. I guess it just didn't work out. Good work by General Kelly for quickly firing that dog. Defending her actions, Mangold said the recordings were necessary in a White House, quote, where everybody lies. Trump's attack on Mangold is the latest in a string of insults directed at prominent African-American people. Omarosa also said that Trump called Trump Jr. an F-up after he released his emails about the 2016 Trump Tower meeting with a Russian lawyer. The book says that Trump erupted in anger when Engel mentioned that Trump Jr. had released screenshots of his email exchanges with Rob Goldson on Twitter. Trump raged, quote, he is such an F-up, he screwed up again, but this time he's screwing us all big time. Omarosa also played a new tape, a recording of a 2016 conference call among Trump campaign aides discussing how to address potential fall from the release of tapes that show Trump using the N-word. Campaign aides had previously denied that any such conversations took place. Hours later, the Trump campaign filed an action with the New York Arbitration Bureau claiming Omarosa had defined a non-disclosure agreement. Sarah Huckabee Sanders wouldn't guarantee that Trump hasn't been recording use of the N-word. Sanders also insisted Trump was not using racially coded language when he disparaged Maine Gold, who is African-American, as a dog. Out of left field, Penn Gillette said he had been in the room when Trump used that language. Gillette had been on The Celebrity Apprentice. White House officials were asked to sign NDAs in an effort to prevent them from writing tell-all books once they leave the Trump administration. A clause was embedded in the White House two-page NDA that prohibits top aides from disclosing confidential information without Trump's express permission. Any violations of the NDA would see the aides forfeit royalties to the U.S. government. Day 573, August 15th. Democrats nominated America's first transgender nominee for governor in Vermont in a night of primary elections that also saw women make history in Minnesota and Connecticut. Minnesota Republicans also rejected Tim Pawlenty in favor of a candidate more closely aligned with Trump. In Kansas, Jeff Coyler conceded to Trump ally Chris Kobach. That puts that state back into play in November. Illinois filed suit against Trump Tower, alleging the Chicago building is taking in and releasing millions of gallons of water into the Chicago River illegally. The building takes in almost 20 million gallons of water per day from the river to cool the property's heating and ventilation system, and that heated water is later discarded into the river. The tower had a permit to do so, but it expired in 2017. Lawyers for former Donald Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort concluded their case without calling any witnesses, opening the way for closing arguments and for Judge T.S. Ellis to turn the case over to jurors. Manafort's defense team argued that the prosecution failed to demonstrate that banks made loans based on fraudulent representations by Manafort. 
The Congressional Budget Office expects the federal debt to surpass an unprecedented 200% of gross domestic product by 2048. The deficit stems directly from the GOP tax cuts, which overwhelmingly benefited the ultra-wealthy. These are the Trump Diaries. Bad at Sports spoke to Hiba Ali about her current curatorial project, UNIT. Generated through Roots and Culture's Connect residency, it delves into her multifaceted art practice, including video, installation, fashion, and music. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at noon. So this week, uh, we are joined by Hiba Ali, uh, who is currently the Connect curatorial resident at um, Roots and Culture Gallery. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So uh, currently you have an exhibition up uh, called UNIT or U-N-I-T. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe we'll just know, we know that you're a curator, artist, musical performer, but let's just cut straight to the show. What What is UNIT? So UNIT is a collection or a unit of six artists, um, including my alter ego, H1B8, so seven. And these are all artists and musicians who both... Um, have ties to the music world and also the art world. Um, and it's they're showing, showcasing their music, but also their installations um, at the exhibition. So that's a big part of the exhibition's content. And they're people who have, you know, who work like quote unquote born and raised in Chicago, but also people who like um, are like from Indiana, so Chicago centric, but not of Chicago. And so tying together these different scenes and how like, you know, music scenes and art scenes get created over time. It's by different people's, you know, um, input to the space. So thinking about those themes as uh, it applies to unit, and unit is like a short form of like a phrase, like you know it's there, and it's there meaning Chicago. Okay. So thinking about um, music but and also art and how those spaces over, overlay because that's kind of what I found in my own uh, practice as an artist but and also a musician. So thinking about them in... Uh, is like overlaps, of course, like separate spaces as well. But that that was kind of the inspiration behind putting together the exhibition. So this is uh, coming out of the the Connect residency. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how how deep into that are you? Is this the culminating experience for that residency that you were part of? Um, so part of the residencies um, based around doing an exhibition, but also. Um, connecting with artists who um, reside in Chicago. So part of it is like I do studio visits with like um, with like at least 10 to 12 people and learn about their practices. Um, and um, part of this exhibition is also to uh, think about music and also performances and um, screenings and thinking about this c- conversation we're having with um, each other's music and inspirations. So the opening happened on August 3rd and the following week, uh, which is like this Friday and Saturday, we're doing a music night on Friday and Saturday we're doing a screening, so video works and talking about each, uh, specifically like he Valencia and Mishka's inspirations behind their music. And so we'll be screening like a half an hour film by Marcel, Marcel Alcalá as well. Um, yeah. So if people wanted to get information about uh, the events that are happening this weekend, where could they get that? They can go to Roots and Cultural's website. Um, RN just um, updated this past week, um, and both of the events are linked there. Fantastic. So w- do us a favor and uh, give us a virtual tour tour of the space. We come to Roots and Culture, and what, what are we going to be seeing? 
So the first thing you're going to see is like the beautiful flora and fauna that are part of Roots and Cultures entrance. That's just part of the space. Um, and like, you know, with the logo unit and all the list of artists, um, as you go around the corner, um, on the first room on the left is Y2K's installation called Welcome to My Y2 Closet. And when you enter that space, um, Y2K is a virtual identity, um, and they live on the internet, but also in person. And so you're able to enter into Y2K's closet, proverbial closet, and um, see their, uh, see, try on their, try on their work through projection. So you, like you go, it's like kind of like you know how you could go to um, like a pumpkin patch, and you could put your head through the uh, head through the frame and become I live a farmer. For that. Yeah. So. We've taken uh, he's uh, they have taken that idea and um, put it in terms of like their their like networked uh, viral identity. So you can like become a Y2K and by wearing by wearing their outfits. Um, and then after that, um, on the right is um, Thum, aka Zainab Randur's um, USBs, um, and that. Uh, an installation is called Blood and Sand USBs. So within the USB, there's like her hair, nails, like hammering nails, but also uh, her nails and pills. They're like wrapped up within these U clay USBs. And w on the USB itself is uh, the Blood and Sand EP that she released um, this past year. And beneath um, her work, and this, this installation is three-part, and it takes over different parts of the floor. And the whole idea is for the viewer to stumble upon Hey Valencia's installations. And so there's um, three-part work. And below um, Zainab's um, USB installations is um, uh, Valencia's work called um, Void. The whole series is called Terraform, and this specific part is called Void. And in, um, in, in that work... Um, he's referencing Afrofuturism, but also this idea of terraforming, that taking over spaces that are hostile and making them uh, inhabitable, and tying this idea to within uh, the music that he's sampling, but also tying this idea historically to like techno and like underground like electronic music that historically came out of like black and black and brown queer spaces, and now these genres have become global, and so kind of like terraforming and bringing that history back, because um, a lot of the origins are kind of erased and not not well known actually. So and that so one part is that um, his work, um, and as you uh, walk down the space, there'll be a TV to your left, and the TV is called it has it's called Unit Playlist, and it has all of the mixes um, that different artists have made. Um, some simply for the exhibition, some quite recently, and they're just played throughout the exhibition. There's two headphones, so people can kind of tune in and see what each artist is sampling or referencing. Um, Adjacent to that on the left side is Marcel Alcala's work, and it's called This is the Place, and it's like a jean, like a kugi jean that's been deconstructed, and there's like a thong coming off of it onto the floor with little eyes on it, and he's referencing um, queer Latinx uh, body, um, it also, but also the absence of it, and looking at um, the way the way um, they grow up um, as like a queer femme uh, Latinx uh, person and growing up in an environment that wasn't like you know uh, cohesive to that or wasn't um, didn't favor that so they had to really make their own identity and what that looks like so there's different like samples of um, imagery that they're inspired by and they reference and as you make as you walk down the hallway towards the right the closet door has become opened and this is part of he Valencia's work and there's just a pile of sand and like a fake gun partially immersed within the sand and 
Um, the video tablet that's kind of has a crack on the screen. It says war, and there is a beep in there, a sound in there. Um, and that's refers back to the idea of terraforming and the kind of different phases of terraforming. Um, as you go left, um, there is Pink Star's Faggy Studio, and Pink Star is your favorite electronic pop superstar. And part of Pink Star's work in Chicago is the Faggy Studio that comes from a previous work at uh, UT Austin called Faggy Stage. Um, the Faggy Stage was about inviting people to 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 be, to be on the stage and to represent themselves because a lot of times the spotlight doesn't shine on the mo- like on people who are underrepresented and people who are not part of a quote unquote mainstream dis- mainstream discourse. Um, this goes towards like queer people, uh, people of color, etc., working class people. Um, so, uh, Pink Star previously made this faggy studio, and at, uh, at Unit, they have a, they have, sorry, faggy stage, and at Unit, they have a faggy studio, so this, and there's a green screen that kind of goes across the floor, and, um, there is a webcam pointed at the green screen, and you can, uh, interact with the work and put in your own, uh, background image, um, and there's a live stream that's actually facing the street. So people who walk by the gallery can see what's happening at Faggy Studio. And it's an invitation for people to enter into that work. Um, Pink Star is saving all of those um, videos. And um, they'll be available for the public to edit and, like, um, remix and make their own. So pointing to back to the idea of, like, CCTV and all of those things. Um, so as then you, as you go right next to um, Pink Star's work is another field of green. Um, this time it's like fake grass, and it's the third part of He Valencia's work, Terraform. And as you look down, there is this colony, and there's an image of a loop of like futuristic cities, quote unquote, and there's an um, audio playing. As you make way towards the right from that work, on the other side is actually Ike Floor's work, and he, um, he that's part of a unit, uh, parts part of RNC's programming, but uh, on the uh, that's the part facing the window, but the f- part side facing the um, the inside of the gallery is my alter ego H1BA's clothes. Um, um, whenever I perform as her, um, I always make my own clothes, make my own music, make my own visuals. So part of that kind of persona or project is making my own clothes. So I'm sh- um, H- H1B is showing her first um, outfit. Um, and that work is called A Rose is a Rose is a Rose. Um, and in Arabic, but also in Urdu, um, I write the word gulab, which is a translation um, w- uh, for the word rose. And so um, H1BA has um, done embroidery on the jeans, um, written in, in Urdu slash Arabic, um, English, um, that phrase, rose is a rose, gulab, gulab, gulab. And um, that part is also reflected in the shirt. So it's like a kind of like appropriating like the work button up office clothes to be something else um, and kind of queer that. So there's that button up shirt and jeans outfit. And then right in the, in the center is uh, Mishka, a.k.a. Jesse's work. And so there's a projection of an electric signal um, repeating um, with a PA system with two big speakers. And for the duration of the exhibition, um, there is a loop of an audio um, audio and visual video that she made um, that is about um, that is about uh, like the way electronic electronic signals circulate, creating music, but also referring to John Cage and the way he did his work as well. And to the right of that is Marcel's second piece, and I believe that one is called. Place in. I'm trying to think of that second one because 
it is. I'm currently can't remember at this moment. I think. Well, that's okay. We can leave some mystery. Okay. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's quite an intense exhibition. It sounds yeah. really visually dense. Yeah. I'm man of the people, John Petrowski, and today we're talking to everyday Chicagoans just like yourself about what Radio Free Bridgeport has meant to them, or if they've even heard of it. Yeah. You've heard of Radio Free? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. That's wonderful. How has John enriched your life? Yeah. <clears throat> you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? Yeah. Mario Smith spoke to Amara Anaya about her mayoral bid. Anaya discussed the contours of Chicago politics, Willie Wilson's recent money giveaway, and more. News from the service entrance with Mario Smith airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. First of all, this is Dr. Amara Anya. Uh, she's running for mayor of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Now, let's forget about me for a moment and talk about uh, you. You are uh, in a very unique position. Um, there's so much I want to ask you. You're in a very unique position in that you have done this once already. Yes. Um, unlike any of the other candidates, I believe, outside of, uh, no, none of them except for uh, Ron, right? Or Willie Paul Wilson. Vallis. And Willie. And Willie. And Willie said something today that uh, we're going to talk about later. Love. And it was the best thing he I'm said. I'm telling you. Since, since for the whiteies. This is, t- this <laughs> tops it. He basically said, I wish white people would stop telling me what to do. And I was oh, wow. like, word, Whitley. But this is why he's so fun. Oh, like, God. he's always going to say what he wants to say. It was awesome that he said it, though. Just But anyway, Dr. Anya, the city of Chicago in the past week and a half has gone through some very uh, difficult and telling things. Um, we have the uptick in violence. We have the bait truck. We have the response to the uptick in violence from the commission, from the mayor. Um, you have a city full of people that are upset. You have a, a, a worldview of Chicago that is, again, probably not accurate. Uh, of the top five deadliest cities in the U.S., Chicago is not one of them. Right. Um, where are you at in relation to all that has happened during the past week and a half here in town? Well, I mean, this has been par for the course for the last eight years. So I think a lot of people are um, sort of more up in arms just because of the things that have happened. But this has been cyclical. So last weekend it was 70 shootings. There were weekends when it was 50 shootings. There were weekends when it was 36. And the process has been the same. It has been the outrage by those who are tasked with ensuring the city is safe. And then there are the thoughts and prayers that go out. And then there is the press conference. And then the mayor wipes his brow, breathes a sigh of relief. And then we wait until the next weekend where there's a significant number of shootings and do it all over again. So, But this has been happening for years, um, and the response has been the same, and that's one of the things that is frustrating about it. When we look at Mayor Emanuel and his role as the leader of the city, um, my opinion, the disingenuous nature of his, you know, you guys got to get yourself together, you got to get your stuff together when you consider that schools are being taken out food deserts, people are impoverished, um, people are struggling, there are mental health issues with a lot of people that are on the street because there are no mental health facilities to really deal with that. That's not just mayor, that's also governor too. Um, in, in, in relation to your potential campaign, what can we do or what will we have to do to be able to right this ship and get things kind of 
if not back on track, because on track means everything is cool. But to, to manage these situations better, what do we have to do? Well, first we have to believe that, so I fundamentally believe that every problem can be solved. It is not that there aren't solutions, it's whether there's the will uh, and the determination to actually solve those problems. And so the violence issue is one that is solvable, meaning that we can mitigate violence in the city, but what has been lacking is the will to do it. And I think that is because it is not, the solutions do not fall neatly within an election cycle or a press cycle. And so if we're actually going to address violence at the root, that requires us to critically analyze the failings that we have had across public policy issues as a city for decades. So you mentioned a few of them. If you look at the unemployment rate and having an economy that is actually inclusive, if you look at what is happening in education at many levels, whether beyond even just the closing of schools, but if you look at the scandals, uh, both in terms of the administration in CPS, but also with the, the sexual abuse scandal, mm -hmm. uh, the inequitable allocation of resources in the district, in the city generally, if you look at what is happening from a public health standpoint, because we often don't see the connection between public health hazards and what manifests as behaviors that can lead to violence. Um, we don't look at those things. Instead, the first things you'll hear about is hiring more police, as though police can reduce violence. Police are a reactionary mechanism. They do not get to the root cause of violence, but it's the easiest thing to say, and so it's the first thing that people say, um, or they'll just offer up thoughts and prayers, or leadership will, will espouse this sort of fake outrage, as though the mayor does not wield the power of the executive to make decisions and to put things in place that can actually address many of the public policy feelings that we've been dealing with for years. So to that end, why won't he just pull the trigger and, and make this right? Well, part of it is when you don't have a vision, how, how do you move? You mm. end up doing the same things over and over again. And so the lack of vision from, uh, from this mayor and really this administration has been problematic. It means that we can't view problems in a way where we can think about solutions that actually get to the root cause of these problems. Um, the it, it is not... At the end of the day, the issue of violence is there's no quick fix. Mm -hmm. uh, if anyone leads you to believe that if we just do this, they're not being honest. It is a multifaceted issue. It requires time. It requires commitment. And it requires us to have a philosophy that we are committed to addressing this issue, not containing it. And for so long, the strategy has been to contain it. As long as it's within those neighborhoods in the city and it doesn't make the national headline news, then we're okay continuing to pour investment within the central business district, uh, continuing to pour all of the resources within a few pockets of the city that we actually care about. The, the issue right now is that it has spilled over into national headlines again, so it makes him look bad. Mm -hmm. And this is a mayor who's demonstrated that he's only driven by ego and driven by his image. And so to the extent that this violence is now messing up his image, now all of a sudden, instead of actually talking about solutions, he's resorting to the blame the victims and, and the community needs to, to get their morals together or whatever message that he was saying. And that's the problem. If you had a vision and a commitment to actually addressing the issues, not doing what's politically expedient or reputationally expedient, then we would actually start to see some, some results in some of the things that we're doing. Does a crowded field serve you well or are you... Mm. Or are you prepared to say, you know, I already know where I'm going to be at the end of this. I'm not really worried about how many people are running. I'm only worried about me and him. I'm not. So I'm not concerned so much about 
how many people are running or even who's running because this isn't about the people that are running. This is about the people of Chicago. At the end of the day, the people will have options to choose someone who represents their values. And so even my role as a candidate is not to come and talk to you about why you need to choose me. It's to simply lay out a vision. And because of my experience, that vision will likely resonate with the people of this city. And if that is the case, then they will make a selection, hopefully, that represents their best interests. Mm. It just means they have many options to choose from. But I think as the process plays out, it will become clear who is who, who has what agenda, and what's actually in the best interest of the people of this city. Michaela? Um, and she ain't lying because I asked her about some other candidates that are running and she was like, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> of course, right. she said it with way more class than, of course. than that. But of course. that's what she meant. I don't care about them. <laughs> Basically. Right. Right. Um, so as always, I give everybody an opportunity. Can you talk about the team that's supporting you and what they look like and what um, who you're looking to bring in and, and, and sort of how um, – your campaign is reflected in the staff that you've brought in. Yeah, I mean, that is the exciting thing about this campaign is that it actually, we actually have people. Uh, that is something that dif- differentiates us from many of the, from, from the field, that the people who, who make up this team look like Chicago. These are not people that we had to pay to be, to be part of the staff, that we had to convince, or that just need a job. These are people who I've worked in the trenches with for the last eight years some of them even longer, who are here because they believe in the vision for the city. They're here because they want to be here. And they represent every neighborhood in the city of Chicago. To me, when when we started pulling the team together, it was the fact that on the strength of a text message to a group of folks, 50 people showed up representing almost every ward from the city Mm. because they want to be a part of creating the city that we know we deserve. That, you can't buy that. Um, There's no reinventing of personalities and trying to create track records. These are relationships that were built in the trenches in almost every side of the city. And so these are people that are very vested in making this change happen. And that there's a spirit about the campaign that I don't think can be can be replicated because it rep- it's, it's so authentic. This isn't, for us, it's not a traditional, we're going to, you know, it's just, it's not a traditional sort of um, manufactured campaign or candidate. It is something that is very organic, that represents the entirety of the city. And that vibe, I think, is what ke- continues to attract people from all over the city to become part of it. <sighs> I'm man of the people, John Petrowski. And to hell with it. No one has ever heard of Radio Free Bridgeport. That's not true. What? I listen to John every Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, th- he's great. Now, th- but that other guy, he's a pain. What? What's his name? Uh, Jeremy? Yeah, Jimmy. Yeah, he sucks. All right, well, that's great. Well, what was your favorite moment of this 150-episode run? <laughs> the time John got Ed to answer all those dumb science questions. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. That time John fell down? Painfully. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was great. That was good. Well, there you have it. Radio Free, making a difference. Wait, 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 wait. Are we not going to get paid for this? Shut up. The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay. Produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. 
voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.